It's a small thing, but um, for those of you folks who are sitting in the um, narthex in the back, if you're able, as much as you're able, would you mind transitioning in here? It's a little easier for me as I'm preaching to you. Thank you. Thanks, Vic. So our scripture passage this morning comes from Luke chapter 11, verses 37 to 54. Um, 1618 is the page number it's on. I haven't put a title up there, but I'm calling it a message of loving rebuke. It's quite strong. Quite. And so I would like to call to our minds, before we read it, I'd like us to remember two things that Scripture says. One, Hebrews tells us that Jesus is the radiance or the exact image, exact representation of God the Father. And one John tells us that God is love. So somehow we've got to partner together this really strong word with love. And that it's got to come to us through the lens of love. Okay, so before we even begin reading, let me pray again. Lord, we remember that your word tells us that love, your kind of love, trusts. And so Lord, I just pray for every one of our hearts right now that you would help us to trust your love, even as you're about to speak to us. Lord, we um, open our hearts to hear from you. Because even the difficult things that you say are filled with love. So speak, O Lord, and give us ears to hear. Amen. When Jesus had finished speaking, a Pharisee invited him to eat with him. That's a big deal. Um, To invite someone to eat with you in your home is a big deal. It would mean that you would be accepting them, inviting them into fellowship. And for Jesus to accept is a big deal. So Jesus went in and he reclined at the table. But the Pharisee was surprised when he noticed that Jesus did not first wash before the meal. Then the Lord said to him, Now then, you Pharisees, you clean the outside of the cup and dish, but inside you're full of greed and wickedness. You foolish people, did not the one who made the outside make the inside also? But now, as for what is inside you, be generous to the poor, and everything will be clean for you. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you give God a tenth of your mint, rue, and all other kinds of garden herbs, but you neglect justice and the love of God. You should have practiced the latter without leaving the former undone. Woe to you, Pharisees, because you love the most important seats in the synagogue, and respectful greetings in the marketplaces. Woe to you, because you are like unmarked graves, which people walk over without knowing it. 
one of the experts in the law answered him, Teacher, when you say these things, you insult us also. Jesus replied, And you experts in the law, woe to you, because you load people down with burdens they can hardly carry, and you yourselves will not lift one finger to help them. Woe to you, because you build tombs for the prophets, God's messengers, and it was your ancestors who killed them. So you testify that you approve of what your ancestors did. They killed God's messengers, and you build their tombs. Because of this, God in his wisdom said, I will send some prophets and apostles, some of whom they will kill and others they will persecute. Therefore, this generation will be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets that has been shed since the beginning of the world, from the blood of Abel to the blood of Zechariah, who was killed between the altar and the sanctuary. Yes, I tell you, this generation will be held responsible for it all. And he's saying that, I'll just pause quickly here, he's saying that because Jesus is the greatest prophet. God's clearest messenger, God himself, and this generation, or a large part of them, are getting ready to reject Jesus. And so that's why they're going to be held responsible for the blood of all the prophets, because all the prophets foretold Jesus. And here he is, and they're getting ready to reject him. Woe to you, experts in the law, because you've taken away the key to knowledge. You yourselves have not entered And you've hindered those who were entering. When Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely, to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. The word of God. Mm Hmm. I want to talk a little bit about a movie without actually recommending that movie to you. The the movie I've not even seen the full movie. My my wife has seen the, I think have you where's Anne? Have you seen the musical? Evita is the name of the musical. So Evita is about um, Eva Peron. Eva Peron was the second wife of the Argentine president. Juan Domingo Peron, and she was the first lady of Argentina from 1946 until her death in 1952. And so in this musical that was made about her life, there's a scene that happens shortly before her death in which there's this really, what I think is a really striking interchange between Eva and her wife, and so Eva and her husband. And so she's in, in, in a, the hospital bed, and uh, he's in the room with her, and he sings to her. Your little body slowly breaking down. And she responds with, I'm not that ill. Bad moments come and they go. And on she sings, denying the state of her health. She says, don't you forget what I've been through and yet I'm still standing. And back and forth, back and forth they go and they've gone with Juan trying to convince his wife of her true condition and Evita denying that it's all that bad until finally Juan, who is looking out the window, he's got his back to her, he's looking out the window, he turns to her and instead of singing, just whispers in this solemn voice, Eva, you're 
dying. You're dying. So candid, so direct, so difficult, and yet so necessary for him to say to someone who's denying the true state of her health. That is the core of Jesus' message today. Very candid, very difficult, and yet so necessary for people who are refusing to face the facts about themselves. Jesus is saying, people, you're dying. You're dying. And I think probably the scariest, for me at least, most sobering part of Jesus' message is the fact that this group of people that he's speaking to and to whom he's saying, you're dying, are a group of people who consider themselves to be very much alive, who consider themselves to know and follow the truth. And so I think that for us here this morning who believe, who believes you're alive in Christ, that you know and practice the truth, I believe that for us, that this ought to give us at least some initial pause. That it ought to perk our ears and humble our hearts and bring us to the point where we would say, Lord, God, we acknowledge that we're not immune to being similarly deceived. So speak, Lord, and help us to see whether your diagnosis of these people applies in any way to us too. So here we go. Jesus accepts an invitation to dine with a religious leader, and when Jesus doesn't follow the prescribed pattern or ritual for washing before a meal, the man expresses surprise. He doesn't say how, it just says he does. He's surprised. It's noticeable. Well, Jesus seizes upon the man's surprise as an opportunity to speak truth to his heart. And so if you, I think it would be helpful to use a medical image. We'll, we'll um, say that Jesus is like a doctor who's just run a battery of tests, and he's coming back with the results, and he speaks, he speaks a very clear diagnosis. He says, look, this is how it is. You are maintaining outward appearances, but you're neglecting the inward cleaning of your heart. And so you're focusing on spiritual minutiae, little things, but you've missed, you're neglecting the whole big picture of loving God and doing right or justice. You love the attention that comes from people. You're focused on how people are going to respond to you and respect and uh, honor they're going to give to you, but you're not even concerned with what God thinks of you. In fact, you are weighing people down with humanly made laws and traditions and ideas for what it means to be religious or good or right or approving to God rather than place an appropriate emphasis on simple obedience to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength. Love your neighbor as yourself. And so you folks, you look alive on the outside, but you're dead. You don't have life. Alive on the outside, but dead on the inside, and that's deception. And so because of that deception, you're like a grave. And that means that anybody who comes in contact with you or, heaven forbid, begins to follow you, follows you right into death. Clear, direct diagnoses. Jesus' diagnoses seems to center around two main themes. You want to pull it all together? I think this is what we're hearing. Jesus is saying, first, he's saying, you're you're cleaning the outside, 
you're maintaining appearances, you're looking for people to think well of you. It's all part of the same picture. But you're not seeking a clean heart. You are not in the private place seeking to please God. You are not coming after him hungrily and thirstily saying, clean and cleanse and change my heart and make me like you, God. And second, he's saying, you are majoring in the minors. You are missing the main thing, the heart of our faith or religion. Loving God and loving others. Two themes. Appearances, but neglecting the heart and majoring in the minors. So let's do, let's do the really difficult work of taking that camera that's on them and let's flip it around. Let's put it on us. And let's say, what would it look like for us? How might we be cleaning the outside, maintaining appearances, looking for people to think well of us, versus seeking a clean heart and God's approval? Or what would it look like to miss the mark and major in minors? Well, let's start with a small, uh, maybe you might think it's funny, example. Here's, here's one. Making sure to close our eyes for prayer. Because we perceive that closing your eyes, this posture, this is what you've got to do when you pray, you close your eyes, right? And you, don't you fold your hands? So making sure that we close our eyes for prayer, but giving little effort toward actually communing with God in prayer. Being open to the work of His Holy Spirit. Listening to Him. Praying to Him. So it's a posture without the heart being engaged. God doesn't want just our bodies. He wants our whole heart. What else might it look like? It might look like being present for worship services. Now the pastor's saying, no, I'm not saying it's bad to be present for worship services. It might look like being present for worship services most weeks because attendance in worship is the good and the right and the spiritual thing to do, but giving little thought to encountering God in worship. And so attendance becomes routine. It becomes this thing you do because it's Sunday, and on Sunday morning I wake up and I go to church rather than a dynamic relationship with a living God who loves us and wants to meet with us, encourage, build up, strengthen, even when that includes convicting, dynamic relationship with a living God. God doesn't want just our attendance. wants our heart. And He wants our heart not just this morning. And so what that means is that it's posturing for us to come and engage God here and then leave. And not speak to him, not listen to him, not read his word until next Sunday. That's not just a small problem that I have with not doing devotions. That's maintaining appearances. That's coming on Sunday and neglecting to walk with God in a living relationship. God wants to fill our lives with his love. And friends, if we don't know how to have a relationship with him, that's okay. We need to ask. We need to have the humility to say to somebody else, please teach me how to know and love and walk with God intimately. 
And if we know that we have a need and we don't ask, then that's pretending. That's pretending. What else might it look like? It might look like being aware of some movement of the Holy Spirit upon our heart, whether that is to uh, convict of sin or to lighten a burden or to comfort or to fill with joy or thanksgiving, being aware of some work, some movement of God's Spirit upon us and being unwilling to fully respond to God in the moment because I'd be embarrassed. I'd be humiliated. What would people think of me if I cry? You know how many times I've seen people quench tears? God's moving, they're crying. I'm sorry, I don't mean to cry. Or if, if I fall to my knees, what would people think? Or if I, if I confess my sin publicly, or if I dance, or if I shout, or if I do any of the things that the Bible shows to be normal for when God is moving and his people are responding. Huh. You see, any time that we allow fear of what people think to affect our response to God, we're given people and their opinions more honor, more honor than the Lord. We are being controlled not by God, not by his spirit, but by fear and the opinions of people. Whoa, we do that a lot. We do that a lot. And you know, in this place, we love that scripture. We quote it often that says, where the spirit of the Lord is, there's freedom. God's spirit is here. But simply because he's here doesn't mean we're operating in that freedom, that we're living in it. Okay. What else might it look like? It might look like not speaking candidly about our faith or other people's lack of saving faith. So how do we speak to our colleagues, classmates, friends, and acquaintances who don't know Jesus and who are literally on a path towards eternal separation from God? Does fear of what people will think keep us from being genuinely, gently honest about the need for a Savior? It might look like seeing sin in one another's lives. Little, medium, big, whatever you want to whatever you want to pick out. It might look like seeing sin but being unwilling to share what we see. Anything that we do or don't do that's motivated by fear of conflict with another person or by an attempt to shape or control people's responses toward us, their opinions about us. Well, I don't know how so-and-so will respond. That will be uncomfortable. I can't do that. Anything that we do that flows out of fear of conflict or of people's responses flows from a fear of man, mankind rather than from a fear of the Lord or a reverence for God and what pleases Him. Okay, those are a few examples Maybe the Lord is bringing more to your mind. But what we need to come back to is this. Jesus, in all of his love for us, is willing to make a very 
clear diagnoses. He's willing to say, look, all spiritual posturing, spiritual pretending, spiritual legalism, maintaining outward appearances without cleansing the heart, it's all deadly, no matter how small it begins. And so he just calls them out very clearly in order that we can live. And I believe that we ought to spend a few minutes considering the love of Jesus that motivates him to give this difficult message because, as we've just said, conflict is really difficult. Nobody likes to say things that are difficult for other people to hear. I don't. And I'm pretty sure you don't either. And you know, Jesus doesn't have to say anything. He doesn't have to. When he notices this man's surprise at his lack of washing before the meal, Jesus could just kind of pass it over. He could, he could notice it and, and think to himself, well, love covers over a multitude of sins. I'll just forgive this guy and keep on going. We'll just enjoy fellowship together. Maybe I'll be able to bring him some good news. But he doesn't do that. Because he loves him enough to diagnose that which would actually prevent the man from hearing any good news. He's dead and dying. And Jesus isn't going to let him die without having the opportunity to hear that there's something bringing death in his life. He loves him enough to not remain silent. Coming back to that medical image, I was thinking that no medical doctor, when she discovers cancer in someone's blood test, would ever keep silent. No matter how far along the cancer appears or not, that that care and concern for a patient and for that person's family would move her to share the news even though that diagnosis could and would be crushing, it would not stop her. Love motivates full disclosure. Because if there's not disclosure, there's not an ability to deal with what's disclosed. Right? Love motivates full disclosure. Love compels Jesus to name that which is killing. Love compels Jesus to be direct to the point of offensive. And so we must wonder... Is that same love able to flow through us, through me in similar fashion? Can Jesus use me to speak that directly? Not angrily, not judgmentally, but lovingly and directly about that which is bringing death to another. Jude, book in the Bible, Jude says, Save others by snatching them from the fire. The fire is that which burns hurts and would lead to death. And so let's ask, who is, who is being snatched out of death? Who is coming to life through our words? There, there are people dying in sin all around us and even among us. There are people who are dying in that place and separate from the love of God. So let's just be really candid. Can God use us in the same way that he's using Jesus this morning? Can his love flow through us in this way? Oh, but I don't have the gift of evangelism, Pastor. Well, neither do I. That, that's a gift that, um, the, where the Lord works ex- 
extraordinarily to share the good news. We're all called to work ordinarily to share the good news. We're all called to be vassals and vessels and um, conveyors of this good and beautiful thing that God has done. But good news is predicated on bad news first, isn't it? And so we've got to be willing to share both sides in love. But pastor, doesn't God tell us not to judge others? Uh-huh. Yeah, Jesus himself says, do not judge or you too will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured against you. And yet Jesus is also the one giving this diagnosis, isn't he? And so what's the difference? Is it just that he's God and he can do that? No, it's not. He's our role model in everything. He is the judge, and he will judge in the end, but he's not judging here. Here he's making a judgment, an accurate diagnosis based on the word of God. So let's parse these out. Judging another person means standing in judgment over them and passing a sentence. Condemning. It often takes the form of accusing or being critical. And um, we tend to relate it to anger, but it's not always. That's judging, standing in judgment over someone. This is making a judgment. Suppose you say to a friend, you know, I've noticed that when we're together, you often speak bitterly, critically or negatively about so-and-so. You know, God's word tells us that if someone's hurt us, we've got to go directly to them and seek to be reconciled. We've got to share how they've hurt us and and um, we've got to forgive them. And so right now, I believe you're sinning against God and against this person. And I, I, I really encourage you to go and um, do what God's word says. That's not passing judgment. But it is making a judgment. It's diagnosing. It's making an accurate diagnosis based on the word of God. And it's asking somebody to evaluate a part of their heart or their speech or their actions or inactions in accordance with the standard of God's word in a way that if they'd respond, would bring life. This is speaking in the same spirit as Jesus. Love compelling us not to be silent, but to candidly diagnose anything that would prevent life, anything that would be dark or unholy, perhaps appearing clean on the outside, but dark on the end, calling one another to clean out the corners, as we heard last week from Pastor Gina, to be fully light, fully even as God is light. It's lovingly speaking difficult words that when heeded would bring life. And friends, God, Jesus here, is always longing to bring life. Always. There's never a moment where he doesn't want to bring life. But whether we're able to receive and live and be conduits of that life really depends on how we respond to candid diagnoses that he makes, whether those diagnoses come through the Holy Spirit while we're reading God's word or whether they come through you to me and me to you and one another. There's only two ways that we can respond, generally speaking, to a candid diagnosis from God. When um, Jesus gives these word, words, Luke writes, when Jesus went outside, the Pharisees and the teachers of the law began to oppose him fiercely, to besiege him with questions, waiting to catch him in something he might say. They are not receiving God's words. They are fighting 
back. Fighting back. So we can receive or we can fight, which sometimes includes flight. Fight and flight are both a part of the one side, one spectrum of response. Now let's, let's stop and consider again, again this medical diagnosis. No person, if a doctor comes to them and diagnoses, diagnoses a form of cancer, no person would attack, would besiege, would look for ways to do what these folks are doing to Jesus, to that medical doctor, right? We might be crushed. We might have a response of pain or one of anger at the unfairness of having to hear this. It's not fair. This person is not, I'm not meant to, to die now or to lose so and so. We might have that kind of a reaction, strong, but it's not against the doctor. It's not against the purveyor of the news. Physically, we understand the doctor is for us and the doctor wants to help as much as she or he can. But spiritually, where there is sin, there is deception by its very nature. Remember we heard that three weeks ago? You cannot, you cannot take deception away from sin. Wherever there's sin, there's deception. And so these religious leaders cannot see. They cannot see what's being said to them. They cannot see the life that's being offered. And so these religious leaders respond with rage, fiercely besieging, waiting to catch. They, or perhaps Satan, through them, resist the truth. Two main reactions. We can receive or we can resist, fight, or flight. So let's look at receive for a sec because it's not as as simple as one straightforward reaction. It's again it's on a spectrum. We could be we could be so humble and pliable and soft that um, you come to well let's not say it's me. Let's use Brennan as example. It's, you come to Brennan and you point something out and he just goes, That is so right and true. Thank you for showing me. Would you pray with me? And boom, you know, like there's heart change. That's the soft and pliable. We might be down the far other end of the spectrum where um where that word from God has to get through, it has to penetrate through layers of pride, like resistance of pride and our sinful nature. And, and there's a lot that's kind of rising up against it. But at the end of the day or the moment, there's still a measure of reception. There's, there's God, I want, I hear you. I want, I want to be willing. I want to hear. I want to walk in the light. God, help me. Um, I believe there's something to what is being said to me here. There's this response that doesn't reject, it doesn't push away, it doesn't run away, it receives. We can receive, it's a scale of receiving, we can receive, or we can fight and flee. Flight looks like this. It looks like avoiding the person or the people who are bringing the diagnosis. It looks like, now see if you've ever done this. It looks like 
finding something wrong with the person or people who are bringing the diagnosis and blaming them, judging them, getting angry at them, dishonoring them, pulling back from them, refusing to spend time with or around them, refusing to spend time considering the diagnosis. That's flight. Fight looks like more strongly challenging the person or the people who are bringing the diagnosis. It looks like becoming argumentative, accusatory, resistant, and hardened toward hearing. All right. Sobering stuff. Listen, in the movie Evita, Juan was not able to get through to Eva until finally he said, Eva, you're dying. In today's text, Jesus is not able to get through to these religious leaders even as he says, people, you're dying. And so the question for us this morning first is, Will we be able to hear the Lord as he speaks candidly toward us? Now listen to this again. God's word says he disciplines those he loves. But we, friends, we are so little used to discipline and love being together. So little used to it that we often, by instinct, even as long-term Christians, fight or flee from these difficult words. And so let's close in this sober place by praying now that Jesus would so work in all of our hearts that we would, whenever he speaks diagnoses, for some of us it's this morning, he's speaking, whenever he speaks, through whomever it comes, we would respond by allowing him to carve out those things that would bring death and to bring the fullness of his life. And let's ask him to make us conduits of that life for others. I'm going to lead us into prayer and leave space for silence. And I urge and encourage you to whom God has been revealing things even as I've been speaking Please make use of prayer partners after the worship service. Come to pray with them and um, receive the life of Jesus. Let's pray.